from Suryakarta to get us started here at Primary Sources. My name is Peter Lamborn Wilson, and I'm sitting in this tonight and all summer for James Ursay while he's off uh, sifting the proud and angry dust in the Holy Land, looking for shards, some shards to uh, heap up against the uh, 
ruin of our cultural consciousness or something. We still haven't heard from James, um, so that's uh, too bad for him. This show is called Primary Sources, and we try to talk about comparative religion, history of religion, and uh, ultimately about texts, mystical texts. Um, <clears throat> regular listeners are used to James talking about the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha and Jewish magic, and the Bible, Bible criticism, that sort of thing. I have a somewhat different slant. I'm more interested in the Middle East and perhaps eventually in the Far East. Uh, that is to say in the Islamic tradition and maybe eventually we'll get to uh, Hinduism and Taoism, which are two of my other favorite subjects. But believe me, I have lots and lots to say about the world of Islam and especially um, as you know, if you've been with us the past couple of weeks about Islamic heresy stuff, so to speak, to the left of Sufism, if I can put it that way, Ismailism in particular, the assassins, one of my main things. By the way, I just read a very interesting book by an Australian writer named David Foster, I believe. I didn't bring it in with me, otherwise I could give you more of a review but it's called uh, The Adventures of Christian Rosenkreutz, and it's based on the old Rosicrucian texts about the probably apocryphal character Christian Rosenkreutz, who's the, supposed to have been the founder of Rosicrucianism. And uh, as you might know, if you've ever looked at those texts yourself, uh, Christian at one point visits the Islamic world, um, apparently to some city called Damkar, which the author, this David Foster, person uh, identifies as Damascus. I've also heard it said that Christian Rosenkreutz went to Yemen. In any case, oh, and also, of course, to Fez, Morocco. So any way you look at it, there seems to have been an esoteric Islamic input into Rosicrucianism. And from what I uh, remember reading the text, and this was quite some time ago, it seems that whoever wrote them actually did know a little something about Islam and about esoteric Islam in particular which would have been very unusual, even in the 17th century, for any European to actually know. I mean, you know, they still, most, most Europeans at that point still believed that Muslims uh, worshipped Baphomet or something, you know, the, uh, the goat god of the Templars. But um, uh, Rosicrucianism does have a strong Islamic input. And this, in this version of the story by, by this author, by this published by Penguin, by the way, um, it's very funny, very surrealistic. It does a kind of almost cut-up of the uh, Rosicrucian material. But there was one very interesting thing. I don't know if you remember. I was talking about the origin of the word assassin and how it probably does not come from hashish, as uh, many older authors used to think it did, because um, the letter S and the letter SH, that is the letter SIN and the letter SHEEN, are never confused when Arabic words are brought into European languages. So, assassin could never have come from hashashin. Anyway, that's the current etymological theory. And uh, <coughs> most people think that as assassin comes from the Arabic word assas, which means foundation, uh, like as in the foundation of a house, and was, one of the, was a title of one of the characters, one of the um, leaders in the assassin hierarchy, were called, was, were called the assas. 
Now, this chap, Foster, has a very interesting theory. He identifies the Asas, the foundation, not with a title, but <coughs> with an alchemical concept. Um, if you know anything about alchemy, you know that there's two different kinds of stones or elixirs. One is the mineral stone, which is what we usually hear about, which is sulfur and mercury turned, you know, uh, basically uh, combined in some mysterious way to form the elixir, which will change base metal into gold. And on the other hand, there's the vegetable stone, or the vegetative stone, which apparently is supposedly, instead of being made with mineral substances like sulfur and mercury, is made with herbal substances. Well, Foster, the author of this novel, identifies the assas with the vegetable stone and the vegetable stone with hashish, so that he gets assas equals hashish. I'm going to write to this uh, person because I've never come across this theory before, and I think it's a very interesting one, and it might even be correct. It would be, uh, it would be amazing if, <coughs> if the, just a novelist's imagination had conceived of this. I have a feeling he must have gotten this idea from somewhere. But when I give, when I, when I say something about etymology and about how such and such a word could never be derived from such and such another word. I always think to myself afterwards, well, why not? I mean, so what? Etymology, big deal. There are other ways in which words uh, have meaning other than a purely historical etymological development. And, uh, for example, take the word Sufism. Um, a lot of people would like to think that it's somehow connected to the Greek Sophia, or wisdom, and also, of course, Sophia as a character, is very familiar to you from James's reading in Gnosticism, but it also just means wisdom, and um, many people think that this is not an accidental similarity, Sophia and Sufism, or Tasawuf, as it's as the actual Arabic word, or Sufi, meaning someone who practices Tasawuf. But most of the scholars deny this emphatically. They say that I don't know the Greek f could never, uh, never could never become the um, the Arabic f. I don't know why they say that. Um, but I'll have to take their word for it. But after all, why should they be exclusively right? They could be right from one point of view and wrong from another point of view. The Sufis themselves say that all the derivations of the word Sufism are correct on one level or another. For example, it does come from the word wool, Suf, because of the wool that was worn by the, by the poorer uh, Arabs in the time of the Prophet. It also comes from Sof, which means bench or rank, and is thought to refer to the foremost in the first rank of prayer behind the prophet, or perhaps to people who sat on the bench in the back. No one's quite sure whether they were the foremost or the lastmost. But all of these concepts are perfectly acceptable to Sufis, uh, not to scholars necessarily, but to Sufis. So after all, why shouldn't the word as assassin come from hashish? After all, so many people have believed it for so long that even if it isn't historically true, it is now culturally true. Anyway, if I ever get an answer from this author, I will share it with you. Before we get into the show tonight, and uh, I still haven't decided exactly what to do, but I do have a few announcements to make. Among them, probably the most important has to do with the uh, last uh, fundraising marathon when uh, I was not here, but James was. And I remember listening, and I remember that he extracted promises for a great deal of money from you people out there and some of you have not paid up. Um, I don't know if I should tell you 
how much money is outstanding, no, I don't think I'll, I won't do that. That's too embarrassing for you. But you know who you are, right? You know that you've forgotten to fulfill your pledge, and you know that that is a terrible no-no around here. People in the heat of the moment calling up and pledging money, or maybe just, oh, make those people shut up and t pretend that we're going to give them money, and then you don't do it. And <coughs> the result of this kind of dereliction will be that eventually there will be no more WBAI. So please, for uh, your sake, my sake, James's sake, who can't defend himself because he's uh, not here, do that. Send in the money that you promised to send in. Okay. I'm sure you will. I'm sure you're all extremely good, honest, deeply spiritual people. Uh, a friend of mine asked me to announce yet another Buddhist event. I'm quite happy to do so. This is called An Introduction to the Theory and Practice of Modern Buddhism, The True Individual. Uh, I see other, other slogans on this little sheet of paper include Right Livelihood and Cooperatives, which is an interesting concept. I gather that this particular group is into a kind of communal or cooperative approach to the Buddhist concept of right livelihood. In other words, they would like to, uh, to see Buddhism as somehow an escape from capitalism, among all the other things that it is, and uh, of course we tend to approve of that kind of thing around here. A workshop by Dharmachari Ratnapani at the Arya Loka community. Now, the Arya Loka community is connected with the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order, which uh, apparently is very big in England and is actually, there's so many of these uh, Friends of the Western Buddhist Order in England these days that they have actually succeeded in setting up some alternative economic some economic alternatives to the usual capitalist consumerism. And it's just, it's just uh, getting underway here in America. On Friday, July 10th at 8 p.m. and on Saturday, July 11th from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. and then later on in the day, Saturday, July 11th, a discussion on Buddhism for the West from 2 to 4 p.m. Now, I, I can't tell you where this is because it's not on the, th on the sheet of paper here, but for location and further information, please call area code 212-255-5316 and ask for Meg. I met Meg myself, and I'm sure she'll be happy to talk to you about this. She's one of the organizers of it. The number again, 255 for information about the Arya Loka community and the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order. It, it is somewhere near New York City, that much I know, so you will be able to get there. And I would like to repeat one uh, thing briefly that I talked about last week, which was the play at La Mama by my, my friend Cho, which has just opened, apparently quite successfully, and I'm going to be going myself on um, Saturday so I can give you an actual report review type of thing next week. But in case you're interested in this Zen-influenced, Robert Wilson-influenced, Korean choreographer, theater director, genius-type guy, friend of mine, Cho Kyu-hyun, uh, the name of his play is Panama, a pre-opera. I shouldn't even call it a play, because what it is is a pre-opera, whatever that means, at La Mama. Uh, July 1st through 5th, so um, right now, actually tonight there was a performance at 7.30 p.m. every night from July 1st to July 5th. For ticket information and reservations, call La Mama, 
four seven five seven seven one zero or four seven five seven nine zero eight. It's actually at the Loma Mama Annex at seventy four A East Fourth Street, and um, I'll be there. Maybe I'll see you there, but uh, even if I don't, I'll probably end up bending your ear about it next week because I love Cho's work. And uh, since I don't happen to have a uh, way to review important work in the theater at the moment in print, I'll subject you to it. On the excuse that Cho is so uh, so zen that it fits right in with our our program here. And again, another th- another thing which I mentioned last week, but I got notified about it again, and I think it's well worth repeating, is the early music players at St. Paul's Chapel present Sing Unto Zion in a noontime concert, St. Paul's Chapel, Thursday, July 16th, 1987, at 12.10 p.m., if you people are up that early. Uh, Broadway and Fulton Street in Manhattan. Concert is free and open to the public. And this uh, features Sephardic songs, synagogue music, madrigals, dances from European Jewish communities of the 12th through 18th centuries, and it's performed with voice and reproductions of historical instruments, including gems horn, or gemshorn, I guess it's gems horn, viel, psaltery, crumb horn, medieval harp, and hurdy-gurdy. <coughs> Journey into the Jewish musical past. Sounds really very interesting. And right up... Uh, as I said last week, right up the Jamesian alley. It's just the sort of music that uh, he himself would like if he were here, and I know he loves that group. Well, um, I think uh, last week I promised to tell you a little bit about the world of underground publications. Perhaps it's a bit of a uh, bit of a digression from uh, our, uh, what we're supposed to be up to, but uh, I think it would interest you because among all of these um, publications out there, there are people who are interested in various kinds of spirituality, especially the, the uh, neo-paganism and what, what we might call the left wing of the New Age, if I can coin, coin a phrase. That is to say, uh, people who have New Age interests but are not rich <laughs> and, and probably don't even want to be rich but just want to uh, be um, healthy and aware and all those good things. There's a vast amount of underground publishing that goes on in America nowadays. The people that you will hear saying that the, oh, the underground press of the 60s, where is it today? It's dead, it's gone. Um, they're right. It is dead and gone, and it should stay dead and gone. It's, it's absolutely no relevance anymore. Um, and it's also, phys- it's also financially very difficult to do something like uh, the East Village other nowadays, to do an actual weekly tabloid newspaper was easy in the 60s. There was so much money floating around. Now it's not so easy. So what people mostly do is, is, is uh, photocopying. Sometimes still mimeo- you still see some mimeograph, and you occasionally see some cheap photo offset, but mostly it's photocopy. And the whole photocopy technology, and also what's coming to be known as desktop publishing, which is done with small computers, all has a very distinctive look about it, um, ranging from messy to neat, but still there's always, there's always a sort of aesthetic that these things have in common. And you can tell right away by looking at them that they're, that they're put together by people who are just not interested in, uh, in getting rich. They're interested in communicating with like-minded souls. And I suppose probably the average circulation of one of these kind of publications would be maybe 100 or 200 people. 
the idea, the, the whole concept is called zines, which is a shortening of the word magazine. And it comes originally, I guess, out of the science fiction fanzine world, which got going really in the uh, 50s, I guess. From the early 50s on, there were amateurs, fans, not professional science fiction writers, but fans who wanted to get in on the, uh, on the world of science fiction publishing who would uh, put out these little zines with their own opinions, their own reviews, whatever. And uh, they were called fanzines. And now, what's replaced things like the East Village Eye or the Berkeley Barb or that kind of underground publishing of the 60s is the world of zines, of Xerox zines, mutant, as I call it, the, the world of mutant xenoid publishing. And um, as I say, it's, uh, there's a wide range of interests, although, well, I would say probably there's, there's a zine or a newsletter now in America for absolutely anything you can think of. I mean, it's not just stamp collectors anymore. Everybody's got a little newsletter. Newsletters uh, in themselves are perhaps a different thing than what I'm talking about. Some newsletters are very expensive, and uh, for example, the kind of newsletter that gives you inside information on finance or politics or something like that and charges anywhere from thirty to $3,000 a year subscription for this inside information. No, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is, uh, in my mind, the most egalitarian publishing that has ever happened in the history of, hu of mankind, humankind, excuse me, um, because uh, it's so cheap that anybody can do it. Uh, all you need is uh, access to a Xerox machine or a photocopying machine, and who doesn't have that in America these days? And uh, some stamps and envelopes, and that's it. You're a publisher. You don't even need uh, a, a a small computer because you can do it all on a typewriter or you can even do it in handwriting. Those ones, I uh, tend not to read the handwritten stuff myself unless it's very neat handwriting. Um, a lot of the zines use a very tiny type also, I have to warn you, and badly reproduced, badly photocopied, tiny, insy bitsy type, which makes the whole uh, experience of reading these things uh, painful and exciting because uh, it's so different from any other kind of print that you're going to read uh, because, well, let's say easy legibility is not the issue. The issue is that these, these publications are going out to people who want them and who know they want them and don't have to be seduced in some consumerist way into wanting to read things that they ordinarily wouldn't have read anyway. Uh, if you're getting one of these zines, the chances are you already know something about what's in it and you want that. Otherwise, you wouldn't get it, because you wouldn't even know about it. And, <clears throat> of course, political, uh, political activists like this, especially uh, the ones who are not connected with any kind of big, uh, I don't know, you know, communist organization with lots of money. Have you ever noticed how much money the Marxists seem to put into publishing? All right, let's not get into that. Uh, on uh, as it would m much more likely be uh, oh I don't know Greenpeace or the Green the Green Party or the uh, or the anarchists or the syndicalists or uh, um, the neo pagan political activists which is a peculiar little subset of its own um, or the one that I'm looking at right now Popular Reality is subtitled Social Nihilists. So um, that's what they think of themselves as. So, so popular reality was definitely one of the very best. Unfortunately, the editor, who's a friend of mine named Reverend Crowbar, 
has uh, declared himself uh, declared himself burnt out, uh, tired of 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 uh, doing the, this uh, zine. I think he's he did uh, he got up to 16 or 17 issues, and pretty regular too. And it, it's large and it's printed on um, what's it called? A sort of a tabloid format on newsprint rather than um, rather than simply Xerox. And so it's a little touch above the usual uh, usual zine and from a technical point of view. But you can tell it belongs to that world because the print is so small and hard to read and badly reproduced, sometimes it just disappears altogether. Um, it's published out of Ann Arbor. That's another thing about this network, the, the, the zine world network, is that it is not all centered in New York and San Francisco. A, a lot of it is. Maybe, oh, I would say, to be fair, maybe something like a third of it a third of it is uh, in New York and San Francisco, e even more in California than in New York. But the whole point about this is that lots of people who do this are lonely social nihilists, you know, mi misfits, mutants, who uh, are so so poor or just don't care to, to, to go to live in a big city, so they're still out there in Kansas. I've had zines from uh, South Dakota, um, one extremely interesting one is from uh, Florence, Alabama. It's called Outre, or Outre, I guess is the, would be the correct pronunciation, published by Jake Berry. And I guess I should give you the addresses of some of these if you're real quick with a pencil. I won't bother repeating them a lot. But Outre, Jake Berry, 2251 Helton Drive, H-E-L-T-O-N, uh, number N7, Florence, Alabama, 35630. Now, Jake is a, uh, has put out um, one of the very few poetry zines. Actually, most of the people who are involved in the zine world hate poetry. Uh, and, of course, why shouldn't they? I mean, poetry, poetry in the small press, which, once again, is another category altogether. By small press, I mean like precious literary quarterlies, and uh, editions of poetry by people that you never heard of on, on real thick paper that you can't afford. Did you, uh, oh, uh, you wanted to say yeah, something, Sydney? Uh, hi, my name is Sydney Smith. I'm engineering for Peter uh, this, this summer. I was curious, is there a middle set as opposed to a subset of publishing that isn't exactly a zine and not exactly small press, but falls someplace between them. Yeah, sure, a lot of them do. I mean, it, like I say, uh, I guess the uh, the definition of a zine would be something that was done with photocopying, strictly then, speaking. Then it's so a technological definition I as opposed uh, to a content thing? I guess so. I mean, the, the terms are used loosely, but yeah. um, I, the difference that I would make is purely an aesthetic one. Uh, In other words, if I don't like something, I'll call it small <laughs> press. And if I do like it, I'll, call it f I'll say it's from the zine world. I mean, I'm sure you know that when I say small press, you know the kind of uh, mm -hmm. pr pretentious, dumb nonsense that gets that's, uh, spread around. Either that or uh, emphasis on the writers of the 50s and 60s. I yeah. mean, there are some good quarter literary quarterlies out there like conjunctions or sulfur, these kind of things. But by and large, they deal with writers of the 50s and 60s, the old beatniks and hippies. I bring this up because uh, some listeners may remember years back when I used to talk about this, and Peter, you know, I used to publish, although I never called myself 
small press, I think the term micro press in the uh-huh. early 80s, late 70s cropped up and that's uh-huh. where we were. I think that's just about the time the zine thing was beginning to take off. Right. And it was just sort of finding itself then because I did because not Because like photocopying it. was getting better. Right. That's the, the reason. Yeah, you were getting not the gray ghost stuff, but exactly. you were getting something that was legible and interesting. Right. And as you mentioned last week, a lot of the collage work, artwork, and thought in some of the, the uh, zines is excellent and I highly recommend mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, work you do is uh, very excellent. Uh, oh, you know. Yeah, I, I have to admit, I have to confess, I'm a xenoid mutant myself. Yes, <laughs> it's all mutant radio this evening. I will now <laughs> go back behind the console and pretend I'm not here. All right, you can you can butt in anytime, Sydney. I don't mind. In fact, I I like having a bit of dialogue every once in a while. Um, but uh, oh, I was I was saying that Jake does one of the very few poetry zines because uh, most. Um, most most people have a very low opinion of poetry, and uh, I do myself, even though I'm a poet. I'm just simply mm, it's so boring, man. It's just it's if it's good, it's old, and if I don't know, it reminds me of something T. S. Eliot once said. They asked him if he read poetry, any poetry besides his own and the stuff that he had to read because he was an editor, and he said no because uh, if it's bad, it bores me, and if it's good, I get worried. You know, I feel like they're creeping up on me, you know, competing with me. It's sort of similar to what someone said about new music, that it was more fun to make than to listen to. Absolutely. Well, I don't, in this world, everyone is a participant. Uh-huh. And um, is some, some are obviously better than others, but uh, there, this is so participatory, so democratic, um, largely because finally at last the technology is, as I say, within reach of just about any American. I mean, clearly uh, there aren't many of these things coming from, for example, Latin America or or Asia because the technology isn't out there and the money isn't out there. Uh, There isn't the superstructure or understructure of money and technology that we have here that we can all take advantage of. And uh, if you have a few thousand bucks to get yourself you know, an orphan piece, uh, orphan personal computer from some company that's gone out out of business. You pick up one of those for hundred bucks, or I heard about somebody who got a laptop for twenty-five dollars recently because the uh, had a broken knob on it that someone didn't want to fix, so he fixed it. Got himself a laptop for twenty-five dollars. If you have a friend, maybe you know, maybe you know a friend who's who's so uh, well-to-do that he's bought a laser printer. So you could uh, ask for time on the laser printer, or even pay for time. It's not that expensive, and get uh, print which actually it looks professional. Laser print stuff looks abs- absolutely like real the real thing, which is actually I have to admit why I'm not that terribly fond of it. Um, I I like uh, this raggedy look that the zines have. I, it 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 excites me because I feel like I'm part of something that not everybody knows about. Yeah. Poor publishing somehow. Right. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm just breaking in here because this is a field that I love dearly, and we both love dearly, um, to publish something. like I'm one who loves neat, attractive publishing. Yeah, it's fine know. in its place. Yeah. But I also uh, like the hairy stuff. I like them both. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm just saying my personal prejudice is mm-hmm. that. I mean, here in this building, they're no longer here because this whole area is being yuppieized and small businesses are being kicked out. Uh, there was a small printing shop. I think it was on the 15th floor, where this is a 25th or so floor building. And when the spirit moved me, I would crank out a bunch of drawings and some stupid text that I thought said something. 
I'd run downstairs after making the layout in the folio. Right. <laughs> and just before we had a decent uh, copying machine and say, how much do you print 200 of these? And he said, oh, I don't know, so much money. Quick, can I have them by lunch? He said, sure. <laughs> You'll fold them for me? Well, if I'm not busy, all right. <laughs> and right. that's how it was done. Sure, there's still people who do that. There's a wonderful bunch of uh, Hasidim down on 46th Street called New Way Copy that are just like that. Mm. And they're real, they're funny and they're nice. And if they like you, they'll, you know... Basically, you can't. Those of you out there who are into this know this already. Those of you who have been, this is way off the field of the point of the show, but I just could, can't help this. It's out there very simply. Uh, the technology is easily mastered, and if you have the dream, project it. Yeah, as I say, it's not real, not really that far off the subject of the show because um, it's about communication. It really doesn't. The content is not so important. If we find that most of the content is in fact radical or weird or mut mutated. Uh, I guess you could say that there are two reasons for that, and one is economic, and one is just simply that this is, if you'll pardon the expression, the avant-garde. This is the edge of the wedge. This is where you're going to find original thinking and good writing. The spelling might not be very good, the syntax might not be very good, the printing might be awful, but I get more pleasure out of this realm of publishing than I do out of the entire world of, as I say, pseudo uh, pretentious literary quarterlies on the one hand or your 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 psychological novel on the other hand i mean it's just boring it's finished it's dead it's, the novel is dead and uh, long long live the unclassifiable they look like 